Hebrews 12, uh, chapters 1 through 2, uh, sorry, uh, verses 1 through 2, uh, but I am going to begin reading a little earlier for context. Uh, so I am going to start us off in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and I apologize in advance for the longish passage. Uh, so if you'll turn with me there to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she, was con since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having the things received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And then beginning our passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author to the Hebrews opens chapter 12, calling upon us, brethren, to run a race, enduring to the end. What then is this race in which we are running? What is this cloud of witnesses doing there? What does Christ have to do with our race? How do weak and perfect men get the endurance to run such a race? These are just a few of the questions that we will look at as we seek to understand what is being communicated in this passage today. These two verses, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, are very often quoted and often just as misunderstood. Throughout this exhortation, I'll seek to show how all of these questions are answered in our union with Christ as believers. Even more than that, I'll seek to explain how this race metaphor is intended to teach us what living in union with Christ 
means for us, what it looks like, and how we are to then live as Christians. So let us then start with how our author begins the passage. It's a colloquial but not improper saying that when you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to figure out what it's there for. This construct points us back and ties us to the preliminary passage we read in Hebrews 11. This tells us that we're not allowed to just start interpreting the text of Hebrews 12.1 without rightly understanding Hebrews 11. So looking back, Hebrews 11 opened that faith was the assurance of things hoped for. The chapter then continued with the chronology of the saints of the old administration of the covenant of grace. From Abel and Enoch to our father Abraham, through to the prophets where we picked up. As we read Hebrews 11, it ends the list of the faithful, speaking of their suffering and ending in the sentiment that though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. This relation of the Old Testament saints grounds our understanding of the opening passage in Hebrews 12. Despite the metaphor of a race by an earthly reading, seeming to indicate human exertion and merit as primary, yet looking at the passage in context shows, of course, the very opposite. Commendation in this race is not based on works of merit as it is in an earthly athletics competition, but commendation is through faith, as it was under the old administration and, of course, continues in the new. It shows that we, saints, the church, believers under the new administration of the covenant, are engrafted into the promises of God that he gave to his saints throughout redemptive history, stretching all the way back through the Old Testament. Of course, the list of saints and their faithfulness in the midst of suffering much more than just connects us to the believers of old. Hebrews 11 is so often abused that perhaps it bears some additional exposition. This is going to be important when we start talking about the cloud of witnesses. For those familiar with Hebrews 11, it is often referred to as the Hall of Faith, something of a word play on a Hall of Fame. In a sense, of course, that is true. It lists saints that God used to bring about his redemption of his people and who often in times of great trials manifested great faith. There is another sense, however, in which reading Hebrews 11 as an analogy to a hall of fame is greatly flawed. Perhaps this is most explained by way of example. When I was a child, I, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I still remember the first biography that they had me read. Uh, for anyone who's of a sufficient age, they may remember Hall of Fame catcher Johnny Bench uh, and his part in the 1970s Big Red Machine era of Cincinnati baseball. The purpose of the book, however, wasn't to connect the reader to the baseball legend, but to extol his virtues and to teach the reader of the greatness of a bygone era in the city's sporting history. Too many Christians read Hebrews 11 in the same fashion, looking back to those mighty saints and the miracles God performed through them as a height 
to be revered but perhaps never reached. This interpretation, however, goes against the plain meaning of the passage, as the author to the Hebrews is not setting up a hall of men to be idolized, but rather states that God has provided something even better for us. What is this better promise, then? It is even greater reason to believe, greater knowledge of Christ. You see, the writer is telling us that the saints in Hebrews 11 believed in what they did not see, in the Christ who had not yet come in the flesh to save. They were united to Christ, but saw his redemptive works less clearly than we do. Calvin's commentary on this passage states that what then ought the full brightness of the gospel to produce in us? How blessed are we, beloved, that we have knowledge of Christ, not mediated through Old Testament types and signs and prophecies, but through the Holy Spirit as it applies the scriptures to our hearts, as we understand not the mighty works of the Lord through those leading up to Christ, but rather as we understand it and behold Christ's perfect righteousness itself, manifested in his perfect obedience unto the law, even unto death itself. Before moving on, let us dwell on this truth for just a moment longer. What a joy and hope that this calls us unto, saints. It is not calling us to remember glory days gone by, No, rather, it is comforting us that as great as was God's providence in days of yore, even greater are God's promises to us today. Not only then are we heirs and inheritors of such blessings, but in the new administration, God provides something even better for us. The author further echoes this interpretation in Hebrews 8, 6, where it is written, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Let us then never read Hebrews 11 as a list of great men and women to reach up to, but rather let us read it as a history of faithful saints who have gone before us, whom God used for mighty ends, though they saw through the glass more darkly than we. How much more ought we to be encouraged then as those to whom God has revealed so much more of his wonderful and sovereign plan? What Hebrews 11 is really teaching us is what union with Christ looks like organically and historically, being united to Christ by faith through grace, by the work of the Spirit. We are promised endurance and perseverance as the listed saints endured. Let us always remember that our union with Christ engrafts us into God's redemptive promises and thus into the very tree of Israel. Our union makes us a people of God, heirs of a greater promise than even those ancient saints. The glorious truth of the new administration, however, must not underplay what is also true that this passage is a passage about faithfulness in suffering in the Christian walk. Or run, as the case may be here in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11 in our passage not only shows that we are engrafted into the promises of the saints that passed into glory before us, but also does so by pointing to their trials 
and their suffering. These, of course, ought never to be disconnected in our minds. For our faith is strengthened and made manifested to the world. Yea, God Almighty is glorified in our righteous suffering. Of course, in our vanity and worldliness, we may try to convince ourselves that this is not so. We may look wistfully at the list of saints, but let us never forget that their faithfulness was displayed through earthly trials, many costing them their own lives. This is the plain meaning of the opening exhortation of the epistle of James, where the author writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This teaches us regarding our union with Christ, that we must remember the words of our dear Savior, who promised that on earth we too would be hated for his name's sake. Not only do we share in Christ's cross and resurrection by which we are saved, but we share in the earthly sufferings to which he calls us. Having thus understood the pretext from the previous chapter, let us then begin to interpret our passage in earnest. First, what are we to make of this cloud of witnesses? While the saints of Hebrews 11 are clearly in view when the cloud is referenced, it is likely not them exclusively. No, rather, the church in glory is so large as to be likened to a great cloud, a body so large that it cannot be numbered. It reminds us of the lament of Elijah at Horeb in 1 Kings 19. I, even I, only am left. They seek my life to take it away. And yet we know it was not so. For the same scripture tells us that in, even in that time of great affliction and winnowing, that God had preserved a remnant of 7,000 unto himself. While the cloud language clearly indicates a great number of witnesses, it is also likely intended to display unity. While many individuals, it is yet one cloud. The saints of the old and new administration are but one body. By what are these saints then connected if there is unity? Using the illusion of the prophet Micah, what is it that unites a noisy multitude of sheep? It is God who sets them together as sheep in the fold with the Lord at their head. What unites the cloud of witnesses then is, of course, the one faith taught throughout the book of Hebrews and throughout all the scriptures. What is this uniting faith taught in Hebrews 11 and 12? What does it mean that they are united in faith? The scripture teaches that which our shorter catechism summarizes thusly, that the faithful are those recipients of the saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for our salvation as offered up to us in the gospel. It is yet another aspect of our union with Christ, then, that in being united to him, we are thus also united to one another, beloved, not only in love, but also in service. This, then, is another aspect of the union of Christ taught in this short passage, that to be united with him is to be united with his bride, the church, and the witnesses that make it up. Before we move on from the cloud of witnesses, we ought to also clarify what is meant by witnesses. 
Some have read this passage with the view that the saints of Hebrews 11 and others are some sort of holy onlookers or spectators, like fans in the crowd of a sporting event, perhaps, rooting us on. As cheerful as this imagery may be, I think there's perhaps another view more in keeping with the text. The cloud of witnesses are those that bore witness faithfully to the true and living God. They serve as examples of faithfulness, not so that they might look upon us, or even so that we might look upon them, but so that we might do as they did, also looking to Christ as our Lord. Any interpretation that puts the focus on the witnesses takes away from the Christ in the passage. As Presbyterians, we value our history and the testimony of the saints that went before us. But we do so not to exalt our forefathers, but to exalt the God in who worked through them to manifest his glory. Next, the text calls us to set aside not only our sins which cling so closely, that sin itself is a burden to the Christian race ought to be familiar to us all. In Psalm 38, David writes, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. In Christ and the freedom he has purchased for us on the cross, we are called not to tarry, beloved, but to cast off sin, give no excuse or delay. If this very day you feel the weight of this burden of sin, you are not called to try to work it off before running the race. You cannot work it off. No, dear saints, we are called to hurry, set it aside and run, run looking to Christ our Lord, and do not look back to the things of this world. Note that the text goes further, however, exhorting us to not only cast off sin, but also to lay aside every weight. Well, what sort of other weights are there? What else must we forsake to be able to run the good race? Luke 21 records the words of our Lord speaking of the days of his return and how we ought to prepare as follows. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. In this passage, Christ tells us to not be weighed down, not only by the more outward and apparent sins, such as dissipation and drunkenness, but also by the cares of this life. In his commentary, Calvin enumerates a whole list of burdens for us to be watchful for, including the love of this present life, the pleasures of the world, the lusts of the flesh, worldly cares, riches, and also honors. Similarly, our larger catechism, in commenting on the Eighth Commandment, teaches against inordinate prizing and affecting of worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them, as likewise idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming, and all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate, and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given us. We see from these lists of burdens that the world takes many forms, but the root of such burdens 
is inordinate love of this world which tethers us here, impeding us to run as we ought. We must be diligent indeed, beloved, as the burden is not solely the guilt of our sin, but all unwholesome attachments to the things of this world. These burdens are not necessarily things that are evil in and of themselves, as of course we know that God created the world good and gave us dominion over it. What makes these things burdens is our abuse of them, making idols of creation, letting things of the created order take primacy over God the Creator. If we have let our gaze be drawn to the world, how can we run the race fixing our gaze upon Christ? If we are facing the wrong way, how on earth could you run well? We must then cast these weights aside, not in asceticism or self-righteousness, not trying to earn merit by our works, no, in faith. As the Catechism teaches us, to stay burdened by such things is to deny the comfort of that which God has given to us. This then reveals another aspect of our union with Christ, which is taught in this short exhortation text, that to be united with Christ is to be cleft from the world. We cannot love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love the world. Those who are alive in Christ are dead to the world. As saints of God, we must live by faith in Christ, and anything which gets in the way of that is a weight to be removed. Let us remember that while the author to the book of Hebrews is calling us to action, this is still connected to the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11. The author's purpose is not to condemn us, beloved, but rather in seeking to edify us, reminding us of those who've gone before us in faith, who have finished this race and attained the prize. Before we move on then, there's another important exegetical point in how the author is calling us to run the race. You see, when most of us read this passage, we imagine that this race is individual, that the author is speaking to each of us personally, And so commanding us to set aside our burdens is something that we might feel we are called to do alone. But this is not what the scriptures state, however. There is, of course, a sense in which this race is individual, but there is also a sense in which it is corporate. The author of the Hebrews continually refers to his audience as collective It is not only I that must set aside my weights and you that must set aside your weights. As a church, we must set aside our burdens. Now, what does that mean? What does that even look like? It means that the scriptures are exhorting us to not only put away worldliness in our own lives, but they are calling us to two additional charges that are perhaps even greater and more difficult. First, corporately setting aside burdens means aiding our brethren in setting aside their weights. Note that this might take the form of helping one another. It might take the form of edifying one another in speech, calling one another to forsake the world and cling to the Lord. I exhort each of you, 
to ponder how the Lord is calling you as brothers and sisters in the church to aid one another in setting aside other people's burdens. But that is not all that the passage is calling us to do. Some of you have may already figured out what the second one is. It is something that in our society is perhaps even more difficult than helping our brother. As Americans and even more Texans, we're generally an individualistic people. We may be ready and willing to render help, but often we are slower to receive it. This passage is clear, however. We must each thankfully and lovingly accept the help when our brethren aid us, exhort us, and yes, even rebuke us to help us to put aside those things which are weighing us down in our Christian race. To bring it back to the recurring theme, to be united to Christ is to cherish and love and serve one another in the body. We are each part of the body of Christ. Eyes don't run races by themselves, beloved, nor ears, not even legs. The race requires each member of the body serving in the way that God has made them and called each member to serve. Having set aside these burdens, then, how is the author calling us to run this race? With endurance, looking to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The first point to note is that the passage states that the race is already set before us. This race is not a path of our choosing. Rather, this is a passage of comfort, precisely in that it states so firmly that it is God's sovereign will throughout the race. God called the cloud of witnesses. God set out the race before us. And it is God in the person of Jesus Christ who is not only the goal to whom we look, but he is also the beginning and he carries us through to the end. The ESV here uses the language founder and perfecter. The King James uses author and finisher, but the intent is the same. It is God who begins the good work in us, who enables us to finish the race, and to whom all the glory is due. This then teaches us how to run this race. If you've ever done any endurance running, you'll know that the only way to run well is to not focus on your weakness and weariness, but to focus on the goal. And so God is calling us to do. But unlike an earthly race, God also promises us perseverance. If I undertake an earthly race, I may be exhausted and legitimately not have the constitution to endure. But in this race, however, Jesus is our perfecter and finisher. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. To once again tie this in then, to be united to Christ is to rest upon the promises of Jesus, promises of not only sustenance, but even perseverance to the end. We all know this, don't we? None of those whom the Father gave to him are lost. If even the birds of the air and the flowers of the field are arrayed in such splendor, how much more ought we, God's children, by adoption, to have faith that he will bring us through this race? Now what then is meant that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross? Of course, in the world, joy and suffering don't seem to go together. But of course, such is not true in the scriptures. 
First Peter exhorts us similarly. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers in Christ's sufferings, and that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. This passage shows us that joy comes hand in hand with trials and tribulations, with the ultimate example, the connection between Christ's suffering on the cross and his exaltation. If the supreme instance of righteous suffering, the crucifixion of our dear Lord, who bore our sins on the cross, having none of his own, could be in order to effect his rising from the dead, defeating death not only for himself but for all those in him, being seated at the right hand of the Father, then how much more ought we not to lose heart in the midst of suffering in our race? We saw the examples of the saints from Hebrews 11 who suffered, many unto martyrdom. Note, however, that we are not called to look upon them as our example, but to look to Christ alone. He is not merely an example, as some might teach. He is our sovereign Lord, God the Son incarnate and our Redeemer. But let us never deny the simple truth that he is also the perfect example. The one promised who perfectly fulfilled the law and through our union with him by faith, he authors our race and perfects and brings it to fruition in our sanctification and finally glorification. This then teaches us another aspect of our union with Christ, that to be united to him is to have our gaze continually fixed upon him. We are to emulate Christ in seeking God's glory in all that we do, whether in strength or in weakness, in plenty or in trial, in youth or age, we must never lose sight of our Lord, who is working all things for our good. We must continually look to him, both as our example and as our goal. To live is to serve Christ, and to die is to be with him. While a great deal more could be said on these verses, none of it should lose sight of what is a simple and powerful exhortation. We are united to Christ and called to constantly look to Jesus, to keep striving forward in this life faithfully, dying to self and living to righteousness, trusting in him as we do those works that he has set before us that we might walk in them. Before I close here, brethren, I would like to address a couple specific groups of people. In just about every church that I have served in, there have been saints who do not feel it is appropriate to be comforted by the promises of Christ in the verses that we just studied, whether because they don't want to be haughty or presumptuous, or perhaps their sin has caused them to lose the light of God's countenance for a season. The promises of the gospel in some arouse shame and guilt rather than joy. If you find yourself in such a season as I described, let me exhort you, brother and sister, to let the covenant promises of Christ our Lord be not just a comfort to you, but an abounding joy. All that which the believer has done, is doing, and ever will do that is sinful 
has already been paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you have spirit-wrought faith, you are Christ's, and Christ is yours. There is nothing that you or anyone else can do to separate you from the love of the Father. He rejoices over you as one of his little ones, as a father loves and dotes over his little children. The author to the Hebrews exhorts you in chapter 10 to not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For it is written, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. So on what grounds can we do anything but rejoice with confidence in his promises? There is one last group to which I'd like to speak directly. If there happen to be any here this day who are outside of Christ, who do not know him by faith as their Redeemer, please do not think that this text has nothing for you. It is about the joy and assurance of the Christian life for those who believe in Christ and are in him. So if you find yourself this very day outside of Christ, I exhort you, do not delay, but seek the kingdom of God. God works in the hearts of all those whom he has chosen. And if you too turn away from the world and unto Jesus in faith, then all the promises that have been spoken of today are promises for you as well. In closing, brethren, let us run the race with joy as Christ endured the cross and the shame for the joy set before him. I'll leave you with a quotation from the theologian Gerhardus Voss that while originally written in his commentary on Jeremiah 31, equally summarizes the joy and assurance that we have in Christ's sovereignty through life's trials. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. It has always been so. So we remember that even in the midst of trial and in the midst of the struggles of this life's race, that we are holy gods united to Christ, and all things are ordained for our good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. With such wonderful promises too great to fully describe, What can we do then but lay aside all other encumbrances, look to Jesus, and run to him with joy and thanksgiving? Brethren, if you could uh, stand as able as we uh, continue in our worship.